The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, president and dean of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. And before we get into the show, we had a cliffhanger the end of last week. We wanted to know how your daughter did in the tennis tournament. Oh, God, that's so nice of you because I got to tell you in advance that she had a good outcome. She won her flight in the tournament. That's really yeah. great. It was a good moment for Julia. I, I said that she was an upcoming tennis star. And I noted that, and I appreciate <laughs> your doing that and not giving up my location either. I thought that was good, even though I out you when you're in That's Texas. Uh, fair enough, but I just wanted to make sure we closed the loop and everyone knew that it was time well spent. That's I really do appreciate that. Thank you. And she's doing well in the tournament this weekend, she is. I understand. Yeah, yeah, she is. That's that's Absolutely. great. Well, good for her. So, Mitch, uh, today we get an opportunity to talk about uh, the death penalty. Yes, well, the death penalty, you know, it's another one of those uplifting topics, but... No, not, really, not really hard <laughs> to make it a hot-button issue. We've talked about it before. We talked about it in terms of the means by which executions are carried out. We're not really going there today. Instead, we're going to talk about the two competing ballot measures and so-called prison realignment. Yeah, it's, and I got to say, it's an interesting time for these issues to be coming back up because we know that it's coming back to the Supreme Court as well, the U.S. United States Supreme Court. Uh, just last week, there was a 4-4 decision that really was a non-decision, again, as we've talked about with the Supreme Court, in which uh, an inmate was... Uh, given a reprieve by a, by the 4-4 decision. He was given a reprieve of the death penalty for now. But it wasn't a decision that really moved the law in one direction or another. It just affected that one case. And uh, Justice Breyer made a pretty good point in several of his comments that he intends to see this come back to the court when there's a full nine-member court. Full compliment, because we're going to be 4-4 four, four potentially for a while without it's Justice possible, Scalia. Yes, And so I, so that's it's great. So what's happening here in California, as you, you pointed out, was that there are competing ballot measures. There right? are, you know, and, I, and I, I'm sure that you, like I, have seen those individuals who are recruited to get ballot signatures, and they post up in front of stores quite a bit, right? Now we can have 
two competing ballot measures, and I find this fascinating. One that I purports, find it confusing, well, but I'm glad you it, find well, it fascinating. Well, it, it's one, <laughs> one that purports to expedite or potentially speed up the appellate and scrutiny process of the death penalty, and then one which proposes to repeal or abolish it. That's right. So you, you could end up, well, I don't know. Again, I'm, I, I get confused because the, the voters, it, it's not like you're voting it up or down, which if either one, tech, theoretically, if either one was voted up or down, it would give the legislators the answer they wanted. Do the voters want it re you know, reinstated or changed or they want it limited? And now you have... Everybody's going to vote yes for one, yes for the other. You could have both of them pass. And we've seen that in the past where competing ballot measures end up both passing and accomplishing nothing at great expense. That's but true. So it, that's do, it does aside. take the pulse of the people, but it doesn't necessarily solve or resolve any issues. That's true. So before we get too much further in that, uh, let's, let's bring our guest in today because I know she's going to have an opinion on this. I'm really pleased that... Uh, I get a chance to kind of mediate between a former prosecutor, and as our listeners would know, that would be you. And today we have as our guest Jennifer Alton. Uh, Jennifer's an attorney in San Luis Obispo with the law firm of Alton and Allen. Uh, Jennifer served previously as a public defender attorney in which she represented thousands of individuals in criminal cases. So as most people would realize, the prosecutor's on one side of the desk of this type of an argument and the public defender's on the other side. And so I think we'll have some interesting discussions about the viewpoints. That's true. I think, I think she's on. Jennifer, are you on? I am. Um, uh, hello, gentlemen. Good evening. Good afternoon. Thank Hi, you for, Jennifer. for having me. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for saying yes. And I didn't want Stephen to get too far of a head start on discussing our issues today. You know, one of them we're going to talk about is the competing ballot measures and the death penalty. And, I, and we're also going to come back, since I have the opportunity of two of you with very different professional experience to talk about a new study that came out on AB 109, which was the, we call it in California, realignment, but in essence it, ha it allowed certain individuals to be moved from prison to jail and certain individuals to be released early, and there was concern that all of that was going to put criminals back out on the street in a wholesale fashion that would damage our communities. And now there's a study that's studied the last two to three years of the results, and I want to be able to talk with both of you about that as well. Wonderful. Let's do it. So, so Jennifer, Stephen started the issue of the death penalty. We have these competing ballot measures of the death penalty. Uh, you know, as a defense attorney, What's your take on, on where you think things are? We had just talked about it coming back to the Supreme Court as well. So, so what's your perspective on this? Well, and, and again, thank you for, for inviting me on. And Stephen, congratulations to your daughter, the up-and-coming tennis star. I think uh, girls and, and sports is always a good combination. So good for her. Hey, that's nice. Um, Thanks, Jennifer. Yes, that you should be. I imagine you're very, very proud. Um, I have read the two opposing ballots and and can sort of see positions on on both sides. Um, I did read recently about the signatures that were were sought in favor of the ballot, the ballot and against it, and they seem to be close. And there was like five hundred ninety three thousand signatures, sort of in favor of the ballot 
uh, on death penalty, and then I, I believe there were 601,000 against it. So it's kind of neck and neck. So, so oh, we could almost just say, how many signatures are you going to get, and we could avoid the cost of the election? <laughs> you think? I know. <laughs> Jennifer, I know. Don't, don't fall for that. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. He's not really proposing that. I, I can't. I don't know. Now that I said it, I'm going to have to give that some more thought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I think, but I think what it shows is that that you know that people feel strongly on both sides, and it it, it seems to, you know, people are talking about it. Yeah. So we're talking about you know we've got the the concern that they have is that in one of these ballot measures that you have hundreds, literally hundreds of individuals sitting on death row. And I was looking at some statistics that showed that an individual, each individual who's on death row versus in the general prison population costs taxpayers, so that's every one of us, $90,000 more per year. So that's $90,000 because they're being housed on death row versus in the general prison population. So, so come on, Stephen, that you got to got to give you a pause when it, you think about that. It those does numbers. and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it gives Jennifer concerns too. I mean, the fiscal impact is alarming. There's no doubt about it. The amount of money that it costs annually to house prisoners and it's not by the way just on death row, Mitch. It isn't. Um, it's really in prisons in general. That's right. that's one of the main criticisms. And California alone has over 700 inmates on death row. So yeah, this is just, Go ahead, Jennifer. Uh, and only 13 have actually been executed since 1978. And and I agree with that. With that, imagine where we could sort of put that $90,000 instead. Well, the way we've talked about it before, the way this California budget works, the governor only has influence on three major parts of the budget. Prisons, schools, and parks. So we're talking about one of the single largest pieces of the California budget that, Jennifer, you're right. I mean, if, the, if we wanted to change our policies, the governor has, has influence with the legislature on how to redirect those dollars. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the facts it will show that we have more prisons and jails than we do colleges. So, I mean, we, we, there are other ways we can use that that money so you come about it not just as a defense attorney from this the because there's always the arguments that the process of the death penalty is biased with all types of of concerns but just from fiscal from the fiscal standpoint uh the, the you're concerned y yes and i and i hear your question that i certainly there are differing views about the death penalty itself but but when individuals say well it's just it's cheaper if we just execute right away and quicker i don't think that's true and so we could use that money elsewhere and and in fact they would still stay in in prison if we just jennifer, decided hold that thought jennifer we're going out on a break but she, okay, it's a good segue because when we come back we'll talk about the expediency and the proposal that's offered to actually expedite the process you're listening to wagner and winnick on the law over uh the biz talk radio network and voice america we'll be right back after this break
Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do some working during that time and some savings, so I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them, and Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. The Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, our topic today is the death penalty. We're talking about the dueling ballot measures, one that proposes to expedite the death penalty process, the appeals process, and the scrutiny process, and one, on the other hand, that proposes to abolish or repeal the death penalty. And I should share with our listeners that on the break, the phone started to light up. We don't take calls anymore. However, we do accept comments, and you are invited to email us at comments at wagnerandwinnick.com comments and, at wagnerandwinnick.com somebody pops one up now we'll mitch answer is, it now mitch has an ipad an iphone what else is over there mitch <laughs> and, and i don't have you don't even have your iWatch on which no is i know Apple I, Watch. it was too much gadgetry i couldn't okay, handle it all right and if, it, if it's a gadget mitch has it i know you're right jennifer and <laughs> i was remiss and I was remiss to say that you were joining us as a guest, and that is Je the voice of Jennifer Alton, attorney and law professor at San Luis Obispo College of Law. Mitch, back to you. Okay, so so Jennifer had brought up the issue of the the specifics of these ballots, and and you know you've got this Justice That Works Act is one of the ballot measures, right. and the other one is the Death Penalty Reform and Savings Act. All right, so Stephen, as a prosecutor, you know I have to ask you is. Yeah, you must have mixed feelings on this because on one hand, when you think the death penalty is justified as a prosecutor, you don't hesitate to go after it. Right. But if it's actually not happening and you've got 700 and some odd folks on death row for 8, 10, 12, 15 years at an extra cost of $90,000, so, okay. So I'll, I'll do it. Let's, I'll take the... the the conversation that we had in the parking lot and go public with it. Okay. And then we'll turn to you, Jennifer, for your thoughts on this, because I will say that uh, upon great reflection over the past several years, I've had troubles with the idea of the delays. All right. And the idea that the delays that are uh, foisted upon the condemned prisoners to me does rise to the level potentially of cruel and unusual punishment. That's what's got my attention. And when I look at the proposed ballot measure that calls for expediting the process, I look carefully at it and I wonder about the execution of that, not a bad choice of words. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 sorry, Jennifer, the application of that proposal. All right, let's... Uh, because one of the proposals is that the process can be expedited if the condemned prisoner is assigned to appellate counsel very early on, because that is one of the festering points. They don't get counsel early enough. Right. And, and Jennifer, I would think as a defense attorney, you'd think that's, that's also exactly the point, that they could sit for five years in on death row before they even get assigned an appellate lawyer right well and, and it is in fact a concern and that the for five years imagine sitting there and then sometimes i heard you talking about the various years they're waiting sometimes as long as 25 years for that sort of final execution right and, you know in five years to even get your appellate attorney yeah it, you know it's amazing you know jennifer i was looking at a couple articles and i looked at the trailside killer carpenter right i think he's the oldest on death row in the golden state and he's 85 i think right youngest condemned prisoner is 23 or 24 i think uh He's purportedly still, Carpenter that is, still working on his appeal, according to a couple articles that I read. So I don't, th so what I hear is none of us are arguing that you shouldn't have 
an appeal. And ex so expedited process isn't just killing them faster. It really means expediting the entire process, such as not waiting five years before they're appointed counsel for their appeal. And and, and if I may, I, I understand that the, the ballot uh, in regards to sort of the district attorney's position is that the entire process from sentencing to, well, execution, literally, it, they are wanting it to be five years total. Do I have that, do I have that right? That is one of the built-in component parts of the proposal. That's correct, Jennifer. So what we haven't talked about is, does anybody really think that the death penalty is a detriment to those who are conducting the crimes? And there's very little data showing that's the case. So if that's the case, you might as well go ahead and expedite the process. Yeah, well, Jennifer, back to you on the idea of the five years. Let, let's, let me get your thoughts on that because, okay. you know, because what I wonder about is, is it practical? W would that happen? Because, and you and I know, uh, having been in the courtroom for many years, I mean, some cases don't even get to the initial trial for maybe a year or two years. So for a death sentence and then the final execution all to happen within five years, I, I think is... It's concerning that we can even accomplish that, and do we want to? Yeah, so if you, if you look at the timeline of a capital offense in California, it's prosecuted in a bifurcated system. There's a guilt phase, then there's a penalty phase. Uh, assuming that the defendant's found guilty and that the jury comes back and issues a death sentence verdict, then the idea ostensibly is that that defendant would be assigned or have access to appellate counsel much earlier is, is the way I read some of the proposals. The question I have, and it's the skeptic in me, is that I wonder whether the condemned, well, the defendant now condemned prisoner would get adequate counsel because you and I both know, Jennifer, that it's not right to just assign any old attorney. We both know the idea of effective assistance of counsel. That's exactly right. And there's a reason I think that, and they still do, I, I recall from law school, call it super due process, meaning it, it should be, I mean, this is a serious situation when we're going to take somebody's life and would they need to have effective counsel. So somebody who is seasoned and, and understands the process. And, and I also understand the pay is not all of, all that good um but but many of them do it for the for the cause and of course the pay but yes the if ever you need effective counsel i i think it's at the time when you're you're now facing the death penalty yeah so one of the things that the ballot proponents on the expedited process those that are advancing that ballot measures say is that more scrutiny is needed early on or effective oversight and the proposal is actually that the california supreme court be that body to to provide that oversight so as to ensure that there's counsel assigned right away and if that could work effectively i think it is a good proposal well it sounds to me like that's where the the prosecutors and the defense bar will will share an agreement that if the resources if proper resources are there early on it's to the benefit of the defendant and, and all of the rest of us to make sure that the, the case was properly brought, that all, the, that all the testimony is appropriate and that the decisions were appropriate. 
I mean, because that, that would start to eliminate some of the concerns of the abuse of the death penalty. So, but the, you talk about the cost. You know, one of the things I, you know, I keep coming back around to that. <clears throat> if you're talking about $90,000 a year for all of these additional years, 10, 15, 20 years, if you reallocated that money to effective counsel right at the beginning, isn't that a better use of it for everybody? And then if the counsel's successful, the person doesn't end up you know, being executed. They'll be converted to life in prison or something else. When we come back, we'll pick up on that note. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. You can send us comments at comments at wagnerandwinnick.com. Comments at wagnerandwinnick.com. Our topic is the death penalty. Our guest is attorney and law professor Jennifer Alton. We'll be right back. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law-Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, sba.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize 
when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov. Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our topic today is the death penalty, and we've just finished discussing two ballot measures that you're going to have an opportunity to actually sign. And Mitch, you were going to maybe give a little civic plug. Uh, there I was about, just going right? to plug that you should be looking for this Justice That Works Act and or the Death Penalty Reform and Savings Act on the November ballots. Yeah, so if read, you feel strongly about this, you should read them. Read up on it, yeah. And I was going to also mm -hmm. offer that if you wanted to see position papers or so-called white papers on this topic, you can look to the California District Attorneys Association's website, cdaa.org. And then, Jennifer, w what would you tout as that? Would it be Lawyers for Criminal Justice? Or, you know, um, CACJ, yeah, California Attorneys for Criminal Justice would, would likely have more information on, uh, on it as well. Okay, so those would be two good sources to get, obviously, diametrically opposed positions. But knowledge is, of course, power. Knowledge and, is power. And I'd like to move us now to AB 109, because this is another very interesting change in California law that is being looked at across the country. And this was a... Uh, both AB 109 and Prop 47 kind of work together here in California to change how we were imprisoning uh, convicted uh, felons. And it did two things. First of all, some of them were 
re realign to those felonies were now no longer major felonies which moved them to jail instead of prison and then some of the felonies were moved to misdemeanors which really even changed whether you'd be put in jail or not so so the recent news on this is a study was just conducted that looked at the statistics from 2011 till now and and it, what it found, and I was quite surprised, was that they show no increase in crime based on the basic statistics they were looking at on individual communities. No significant increase in crime because of these. Now, Jennifer, I, I found that surprising. You know, you practice law in a, in a region on the central coast of California. Did, does that data track with what you saw over the last several years? And 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 I, I I would agree there. I think there was this fear factor, as it were. Um, I, I do. I from what I have read, there was some some increase in auto thefts and perhaps bike thefts originally right afterwards. Um, to be fair, but then those went back down, and then essentially that was the big scare. Um, but. No, I, 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 we haven't seen it, and in fact, we have seen just the opposite of AB 109, which is um, what California designed after the U.S. Supreme Court told California to reduce the prison population, that all of these programs are in place for, for if, if they are in custody, there, there are lots of programs to sort of assist them, such as books behind bars, there's substance abuse programs, spiritual counseling, but also those who get out, they're, they're under um, supervisory conditions. So they, they're kind of keeping an eye on them, and they, they haven't seen this big concern that, that I, I think many were worried about. So the, the so-called hue and cry, Jennifer, over, oh, we're going to see uh, recidivism spike, we're going to see offenders come out click up their heels once they get out of local jail and then go recommit that you haven't really found that to be happening i haven't found that to be happening and from what i've read it hasn't happened yeah and i just haven't seen it yeah you know the other thing that's interesting and i wanted to get your take on this jennifer mitch had mentioned fiscal impact in connection with the ballot measures my understanding is that and and i don't know the specifics of how the courts are dedicated or uh set up so as to accommodate uh, the uh, AB 109-like crimes or Prop 47 crimes, but what, what's the fiscal impact, in your opinion, on dealing with the outgrowth of AB 109 or Prop 47? Well, and the fiscal impact with, with meaning not having to house them and, and what, what that yeah, has that, saved. Yeah, that, that the, the incarceration, incarceration component and the uh, influx or court resources, if any? Has there been any kind of jolts to the resources in the courts that you've seen? I, I, I haven't. And, and do you mean such as has there been more funding for... Local um, courts. Yeah, because I know we haven't seen it in Monterey. A need, a need, for instance, to set up a court that's designed for the so-called non-violent crimes. Uh, right? it, that's a good point. Now, that's I hadn't thought about that direction. No, and, and there's not a specific court. It's just that whichever court it falls into, they they will comply with 
the AB 109, and certainly the Prop 47 did make changes, which which caused many attorneys to to be busy, defense attorneys and DAs to be busy trying to revisit cases um, once Prop 47 passed, and the courts got quite busy, um, but but not. Yeah, I don't think an overall burden. No. Okay, that's so, Steve, Stephen. Let me just jump in on that for just a minute because then I want to go back to something that you and I've talked about before which is the the different strategy that a prosecutor such as yourself or a defense lawyer such as Jennifer might use with this data but it but it looks like statewide from a prison standpoint there's a savings of somewhere between 400 and 500 million dollars a year at the prison level. And so one of the things I thought was fascinating about this study is it points that out and says, you know, that's something we should all be very happy about. What I thought was curious is what they didn't do is talk about the increased cost in the county jail level. And knowing the local uh, county sheriff and the, the captain in charge of the local jail, you know, they say, yeah, all of the savings is great at the prison level and the governor can thump his chest and legislatures can say it's great, but none of that money flowed back down to the, the jails who then were shoved to 300% capacity. Without enough bed space and issues like that. Yeah, space. Jennifer, what's your take on that? Well, well, in fact, I, I have heard the opposite. I have heard that they here locally got quite a lot of uh, quite a sum of money which they then but were required to use it for the realignment programs and in my understanding from everything all of my sources here is that they did yes they got more more inmates but they also got funding to assist them well that would be good and i guess that's one of the interesting things particularly in california when these things are put down to the county level it really is a county by county decision that it's not statewide but it sounds like in in your part of the central coast it, it was affected much better there is money coming to monterey county but it's for building new facilities but it'll take years before that actually takes effect what i think is fascinating about this is that you have the 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 negotiation, the dance that we see in the courtroom between prosecutors and, and defense attorneys that's talking about, first of all, Stephen, what, what you, w which level of crime you want to take an incident and charge as. Because, as you know, we've talked about the discretion factor. You can charge it as a felony. You could charge it as a misdemeanor. And obviously that has tremendous effect on what the possible jail and or prison time is. With these statistics, I mean, how does that change the strategy of a prosecutor? Yeah, I think that it's, it's probably caused a lot of rank-and-file trial deputies and DA's offices throughout the state, all 58 counties, to really uh, increase the objective evaluation of, of the charging decision and then how they proceed throughout, you know, from potential plea negotiations on through going out to trial. You know, they all prosecutors are uh, required to uphold justice and to seek justice and to only charge crimes that there's sufficient evidence to support. There's an oath that we take to do that or that I did take formally, just as uh, Jennifer would have the right and honor and be honor bound to zealously represent a client. So, you know, I don't know, and Jennifer, I don't know if Mitch is getting at the issue of whether or not there's some vindictiveness or some some issues going on in the courts between prosecutors and defense attorneys in light of some of the propositions. I had gone to the civil sector at the time that prop that AB 109 and Prop 47 had come into 
play. So Jennifer, doesn't it give you a tool? Doesn't it give you a tool as a defense attorney to say, look, the, this person's not going to do prison time anyway. Why ramp that up to a felony? Let's, let's negotiate and see if we could settle this out at a misdemeanor level. Yes. Does it give us a tool? Yes. And to answer Stephen's questions, is there a vindictiveness on prosecutors? I, I don't see that. I don't see that here in this county. Great answer. Um, I, 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 I think very highly of our, our local prosecutors and, and um, you know, consider them friends and colleagues. And no, I think they act, frankly, I think they act in good faith. No, that's great because um, I think that collegiality issues are an important one. It is. It is. And I really do think they, they act in good faith. And also with the with the realignment, I think people are worried that there are these hardened criminals. And, it, and Stephen, as you know, it's the non-non-non, which means the, those who are realigned, which can go to jail, go instead of prison. Hold that thought, Jennifer. We'll come back on okay. that issue of who's Great. eligible under those uh, certain conditions and uh, AB 109 and Prop 47. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our guest is attorney and law professor Jennifer Alton. We'll be right back after this short break and pick up with our conversation. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a, a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go. So it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. 
If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at FTC.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to constitutioncenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our guest today is attorney and law professor Jennifer Alton, and we've been talking about the death penalty, and then we weaved into the topic of realignment. And Mitch, you were going to ask some questions about well, impact and effect. Well, Jennifer, you just talked about the non, non, non. Tell, tell, tell the non-lawyers and the, tell the non-lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you mean by non, non, non? Uh, and I, and I, I, I know we just got caught off of there at the non, non, non. Well, what, what AB, AB 109 comes into play, not for everybody again. So the fear factor can, you know, to, to assess that, it's only for low-level prisoners, which are those who have committed crimes that are non-violent, that are non-sex-related, and that are non-serious. So I, I think that should alleviate some of the concerns about who is, is getting the benefits of AB 109. But they also said that AB 109 was not just about overcrowding, but of course we know it was, but, that, but it wasn't only that. It was going to enacted to combat recidivism. So how does it do that? 
So if you're getting people, so you, you've, you've had over a thousand clients that came in and you were representing them as, as defendants. And so the, you, you had a sense of what was in their mind and wh what brought them to you and got them in front of a court. Uh, how does this help combat recidivism from what you've seen as a defense attorney? And I, it's not an easy question, but just, That's you know, what's your, thought, what's your thought? What, what were they thinking or what would you, what would your best argument be on that? Oh gosh, and you're right. That's not an easy question. I, I mean, I would say there's probably lots of ways, but I, I think if we can keep people out of jail or prison, if again, for a low level um, offense, they can stay with their jobs and keep making money and they can keep their families together and, and sort of stay on track if there are, if they're getting some help for any type of substance abuse, they can, they keep keeping them out of custody can keep that going. And when we have good jobs and good family supports and good health care, I think that affects whether we are making some decisions about to commit a crime or not. Okay, That's so, just so one quick answer. So, Stephen, she's she's focusing in on the non-custodial mandatory supervision, probation. So, of uh, the this huge group, five hundred some odd crimes are now eligible to be redirected into non-custodial supervision. And, and so that's right. She could keep in your job, your family's there, you've got your support system, you could get drug rehab. All right, you're a prosecutor. Are you buying that? Um, I am buying it if I see examples of it. Okay. I mean, that's actually really my best answer to that. That resonates with me. And I think, Jennifer, wouldn't you say that when you can cite to examples of successful probationers, right, or maybe one of your clients or former clients who performed admirably on probation, you're going to use those examples to your advantage in future cases, right? Absolutely. And in fact, that's how we often, I often get, I do juvenile work as well. When I show everything that they did out on probation while they were out, uh, yes, I think that I think that does, and I think it goes back to we were worried about all of these crimes being committed, and there was an increase in some auto thefts, but then it went back down. So let's talk a little so, about juveniles because I think that's a that's a great point. One of the the kind of urban legends is, or it seems to be, that you know you put a juvenile in jail and or prison, and all they come out is a better criminal, but they don't come out rehabilitated. I mean, you would, what, what's your experience been with the juveniles you've worked with? Oh, I, I love my, my juvenile, my, the kiddos, the clients. No, I, I, they're at juvenile hall, which is separate from the adult, um, jail. The, the, the vocabulary is completely different. It, the, the courtroom is closed off from the public for good reason. They, get a lot of services when they're in and, and in fact when they're out on probation um, and they have to check in on progress hearings they have probation officers they have a lot of resources to really help them stay on track so that they can successfully um, complete their probation and those are some of my favorite days when we walk in and they have successfully completed probation and we get to close their case. And while they're going through all of that uh, process, Jennifer, there's usually a prosecutor assigned to marshal and watch all that unfold, right? 
Absolutely. So there's just just like in the adult court, there's the uh, the prosecutor and then the, the defense attorney, and then probation plays a huge part in the juvenile courtroom. In fact, uh, probably bigger than in the adult courtroom. They really um, have a, a lot of say in what what happens. Um, but yes, of course, the prosecutor and, and defense attorney are, are we're, we're all often discussing the cases, and and so yes, they. Yeah. Both parties are involved. Well, Mitch has done it once again, as he is apt to do. He's raised a topic toward the end of the show. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it is one we want to get into again, because as you know, there's also some significant changes in the works potentially on how juveniles are tried, and that's the issue of trying juveniles as an adult and so-called direct filings uh, in the Welfare and Institutions Code. But that we can't take on right now. Well, I think what we ought to put on our agenda is, and it, Jennifer brings it up with the juvenile court, that these groups of what they many times call compassionate courts. So it's juvenile court, it's drug court, there's a mental health court, there's a veterans court. I mean, those are all courts that take the, the approach that Jennifer just described of it not being a, a, a goal to incarcerate someone, but the goal is to get them out into the services they need to keep them from. Yeah, and we have and we have Judge Lavarado presiding here in Monterey County. And Jennifer, I think it, does Judge Trice still preside over? Is it Veterans Court? Uh, Judge Trice does Veterans Court, and he does it quite well. It's quite impressive. And Judge Hurst does the Juvenile Court, and it's been her assignment for a couple of years. So I'm in there um, um, quite often with her. Oh, that's great. So, so Jennifer, it sounds like if, if you had your way and we could succeed with some of these savings that we're talking about, moving things more towards the model of juvenile court, even for non-juveniles, is, is a direction we ought to be thinking about. I do. I think I think the way they, they surround them with such resources and you set out to really help them succeed. I mean, and, and that's kind of, that's how we set out right from the start. And of course, I it's always up to the, the individual. And I tell my, my young clients, it's up to you um, to, to, to make new choices. But we don't, we don't seem to surround the adults with that, that type of resources and that that many coming together of Jennifer that's really our cue to, to that's our cue to say thank you and we're out of time we greatly appreciate it so for more information you can see Jennifer's information at Alton and Allen the law firm in San Luis Obispo Jennifer thank you very much great to have you on the show today it's a reminder time to tell you that each, each week, you can go to wagnerandwinnick.com or voiceamerica.com on the business channel to see an archived version of today's story. And as always, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. is always a good idea. Each week, Wagner and Winnick on the Law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.